Welcome to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Mariah, and this is a podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infield Development and Edmonton Association, a non-profit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. Our guest today is Andrew Laycock. He's the manager of customer relations, customer connections for Epcor Distribution and Transmission Incorporated, which is the electrical side of Epcor. He spent over 15 years in stakeholder relations for utility companies, over 20 years in professional communication. In his current role, he acts as the bridge between Edmonton's developer and builder community and Epcor internal teams that do the design, maintenance, managing, and building the connections that are needed to supply power to our city. Andrew coaches his daughter's soccer team. He cheers on his son's ultimate team, and he really likes bad reality television, which is where we start this conversation. Um, What do we need to define for the guests before we jump in here? Yeah, well, Andrew has a great job. It's very technical. That's why we brought him on today's episode, uh, because I know I learn from him every time I talk to him. So I was like, well, Andrew, can you please be on the podcast? But I think there's two things that we need to go over before we start. So one thing is there's the Alberta Utilities Commission, the AUC. They regulate the utility sector, natural gas, electricity markets, uh, to protect social, economic, and environmental interests of, for all of Alberta. So anything that EPCOR does, uh, or EPCOR utilities for power, uh, they have to go to the AUC and get it approved, just like everything that EPCOR Water does has to go to the municipality and ask them for the rate base to be approved. Yeah, we talk about that a little bit in the episode. That was um, kind of an interesting dis- difference between the water and the power side. Uh, the water side's a little bit more local. And then, of course, the power side seems to be on the, uh, they got to go up to the province, uh, sort of, to get approvals for things. The second thing we have to define is uh, the difference between single phase power and three phase power. And I'm going to absolutely destroy this, I think. I, uh, I I learned what this was just through internet searches. I, I've been in enough meetings um, that I've heard it spoken enough uh, by people that probably know what they're talking about that I thought I knew what it was, but I didn't actually. So here's my best, uh, my best um, definition. Single phase power, there's two wires coming in and it alternates power supply. So while one is providing power, the other one is neutral, and then it switches. So in one cycle, the power peaks twice, but it isn't a constant stream of power. There's always a peak, and then it switches, and then another peak. In three-phase power, there's three wires, two of which are going constantly. So it allows for constant streams of power, allows for higher loads to be used off of that uh, power source. So typically in uh, things with higher loads, uh, commercial, industrial, multifamily, residential type developments, you'd get three-phase power. Um, And then single-phase power is really for the low density type thing because uh, you don't have the heavier loads quite as much. I think I nailed that. But if um, anybody is listening that knows, or if I made a mistake, please let me know. I think you did a great job uh, for the amount of times I've had Andrew explain that to me. That was like a way better explanation than I could ever give. Um, so let's get into today's episode. So our guest today is Andrew Laycock, who is the manager of customer relations, customer connections for Epcor Distribution and Transmission Incorporated. Andrew, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. 
Uh, I got to start off by saying in your bio that you sent us, you said that you enjoy tricking your wife into watching really bad television. Mariah and I, uh, Mariah and I are both really big fans of bad TV. I'd love to hear what you're watching that, uh, that you consider bad. Uh, you know, if it has uh, the words island or like housewives in it, it's pretty much a go-to. So Love Island, Temptation Island, um, Love is Blind, but then Real Housewives, Orange County and Atlanta, like those, they just make me feel so good about myself. Yeah, the love and the drama. I love it. My my brother always makes fun of me because I love bad TV as well. I, I always say if I'm going to watch TV, uh, I'm going to make sure it's junk food for my brain. Like I just like to turn off and just watch dramatic TV. But yeah, Mariah, what are you watching right now? That's really bad. Uh, so I also love terrible TV. Love is Blind was like a big thing between me and a couple of my girlfriends. Uh, but I'm watching, re-watching Emily in Paris right now to get ready for the new season. Uh, it comes out like literally in six days and I'm counting down the days till it's out. Yeah, incredible. We are off the rails already here. So let's dive in a little bit. Uh, Andrew, I want to start off with uh, public relations. Um, a quick Wikipedia search tells me that public relations has been um, a career since uh, you know the 20th century, but it wasn't defined until the 70s. I'd like to hear what your definition is of what uh, public relations is. Uh, wow, that's uh, it's very wide ranging. It it really is. I do. I have my bachelor's of applied communications with my major in public relations from Mount Royal University down in uh, Calgary. And for, for me, it's, it's an umbrella that in, encapsulates and is kind of related to so many things because people think that, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's related to journalism, it's related to technical writing, it's related to, you know, to marketing and all of those things can be part of it. But for me, the heart of it is just it's um, the 21st century's version of storytellers because that's what PR people are essentially. They, they have their their tribe, if you will, who they, you know, who they represent, and they learn the stories and they pass them on. And it's trying to find connection with other audiences, because connection is the heart of communications, establishing connection, establishing that commonality. And so I use my PR skills, my spin doctor skills to create connections between uh, whomever I'm speaking to, and the the audience that I represent. And I've been fortunate, I've been doing it for over 20 years now. Um, I've represented healthcare, I've represented the provincial government, the federal government, oil and gas, and now I'm in utilities. And so I tell stories and I learn stories. And that's, that's to me what public relations is. Yeah, that's a very eloquent way of, of saying it, way better than what Wikipedia said. Um, how did you choose this career path? How did you get involved? You know, I was uh, I was mediocre at math. I was really no good at science in high school, um, but uh, English, social studies, those things, uh, and as well, I always had a, a natural skill for um, for for being an orator, for giving speeches, for public speaking. Um, and so, in looking at things, I once had the uh, the opportunity to give a tour to a bunch of executives from Petro Canada. This was many decades ago, but uh, through my high school. And one of them happened to be uh, the vice president of uh, communications and international relations. And so when I was done giving the tour, he said to me, he's like, you're really good at this. You should, you know, think about, you know, PR as, as a career. And that kind of stuck with me. I was actually on the path to uh, becoming a lawyer at that time. But the more I investigated, 
the more I saw that the things that I liked about um, law were the things that I liked about uh, public relations. And it kind of suited me better. And then Mount Royal was grant given um, degree granting status for PR. And I was like, let's go check this out. And then, like I say, it, uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. Have you ever participated in uh, Edmonton Story Slam? I haven't. Um, I was uh, set to actually participate in a poetry slam and then COVID hit. And so, um, yeah, spoken word, uh, uh, poetry slam, that's that's my thing. Nice. Uh, let's change gears a little bit here. Um, now your current role. So how does your public relations uh, background and work? I mean, you've worked in all these different industries, but how does it help you uh, work with the development industry now in your current role? Yeah, in my current role, again, it's about creating that that connection. My current role as manager of customer relations, I always see myself as the bridge or the, the liaison between internal Epcor, our engineering, our design, our project management departments for those new and upgraded service connections um, and Edmonton's home builder and developer community. And so I've been in, in utilities now for coming up on 15 years. So I, and most of that has been in the electric side. So I have a really good understanding of electricity as a utility. And so I use my skills to kind of be that go-between um, to create understanding and find that commonality between what builders and developers need and what they're saying and to match that with, you know, what our with what our story is internally and with what the limitations are of, of an electrical utility. So I often say that, um, you know, in a joking way, when I describe what I do, I'm a mobile boutique complaints department and I've made a living off of having a thick skin and a short memory, but uh, I get hit from both sides. Um, but it's, it's okay because it is, it's about creating um, those connections and creating that understanding. And so that's where my skill set has really been beneficial to me. So uh, before we jumped into this conversation, we were kind of doing some back and forth about favorite movies and, and the holidays coming up. Uh, but I also talked about Epcor Power and you reminded me that it's not actually called Epcor Power. Uh, can you give me a bit of a background history on Epcor Power? Sure. Yeah, there, there actually is no such thing as Epcor Power. Uh, there's actually not even anything such as Epcor Electricity. But um, telling everyone that we're Epcor distribution and transmission incorporated uh, doesn't really have that zazz to it that you're, you know, you're kind of looking for and it takes a little while to say. And so um, Epcor as, uh, as an entity actually dates back over a hundred years. The uh, beginning of it was um, Edmonton Power, which was Edmonton's first electrical utility. Uh, and that's now, you know, got to be, gosh, a hundred and... 506 years old, somewhere in there. Like, I mean, we brought uh, electricity to to the city um, a long time ago. And along the way, um, it became a city department and then was incorporated with, uh, with water. Uh, and at one point, um, city administration decided to create a municipally owned utility, um, which became EPCOR. And so EPCOR, uh, at the time we were EPCOR Power and EPCOR Water were kind of um, spun off as a separate arm's length utility where the city is the sole shareholder. And that's the way it is today. Uh, the biggest change, though, has been that we used to have power generation assets. We used to have um, 
power generation out in, in Wabaman and other places. And we spun that out and that became Capital Power. And that's now a publicly traded company and is fully different than, than Epcor. We've, uh, we've divested ourselves from that. But we used the money that we made there to expand on our water operations. And then we've just grown from there. So we now have operations uh, in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. And so we have all of these different business units. But the one that I work for, if you call us Epcor Electric, we do we do deal with the, uh, the electricity. Um, we have the uh, wires agreement, the franchise agreement for the incorporated limits of uh, Edmonton. And so we make sure that the infrastructure is in place to get electricity from where it is generated by Capital Power or whomever else uh, to your home so that when you hit that light switch, your lights come on. Now, Andrew, you used to work for Atco Electric. Is that right? Yeah, I worked uh, for them for a number of years and I worked for uh, the electricity side of that as well. Um, And uh, the big difference or the shift for me is that Epcor is based just in Edmonton, whereas Atco's franchise territory is throughout um, different parts of the province. Alberta is unique in its regulatory framework in that um, we are a deregulated um, province, which means that there's different entities that are responsible for electrical transmission uh, infrastructure as well as electrical distribution infrastructure inside of different areas. But um, we're regulated monopolies because you, you don't want two different utilities in the same territory because then you'd have twice as many poles, twice as many towers and all of that. So Alberta, think of it, you know, kind of as a jigsaw puzzle and it was kind of divided up. And so when I was working for ACO, it was great. I got to travel to all the best places. I can tell you the best place to get um, pie throughout Alberta. Like, honestly, the very best place is in Hannah, Alberta. It's called Lucy's Pies run by a little uh, woman from who emigrated from South Africa. If you're near there, check it out. It is worth it, sweet and savory. But I I started having a family and I and I started having children and I didn't want to spend as much time away from home anymore. So I took my skill set and I translated it into a couple of different roles with Epcor um, because they are their piece of the Alberta pie. Their piece of the Alberta jigsaw is just Edmonton. And so same work, but uh, a lot less spent on gas. So Andrew, you and I have been working together on and off for the past couple of years, and I've been working with Epcor Water for a little bit longer. Uh, But when I first started working with you, I don't think I fully understood that Epcor has multiple different branches um, that are governed different ways, that are financed different ways. And so can you share with our listeners how Epcor Water and Epcor Power kind of differentiate uh, and what their focuses are on? Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that we come across quite a bit where people, when they think of EPCOR, they think of one organization. Um, and so it can be a little bit frustrating when you're you know, trying to plan something like an infill project and you're like, why can't I just talk to one person and they can handle my water, wastewater, drainage and electricity needs? Um, and the reason is, is that we are separate business units. And not only are we separate business units, but we're separate legal utility entities, which means that our funding comes from 
well, it comes from the, the same place. It comes from the consumer, but it comes in different ways. And because we have those divisions of how we get paid, there are actual regulatory limitations to to what we can do and we can't share information and we can't be together in that way. Um, and that's a protection to the consumers. So when it comes to Epcor Water, Epcor Water, their regulator inside of Edmonton is the city of Edmonton. Uh, city Council wears a number of different hats. Um, they are the shareholder. They represent the shareholder because Epcor all of us as you know all the different business units as epcor as one entity we're wholly owned by the the city of edmonton and so all of the money that we make uh, we end up giving a, a dividend to the city of edmonton every year because they are our one shareholder um, this year i think it's uh, going to be just over 180 million dollars um, which is uh, a considerable and profitable investment by the the city of edmonton but uh, city council, they also wear the hat of regulators. So they help determine what the capital spend is going to be, what the rates are going to be. Uh, and utility committee through city council deals with all of that. And so they look at everything from uh, what's best for the city of Edmonton viewpoint. Um, EPCOR on the electric side, um, our regulator is the Alberta Utilities Commission. And so the Alberta Utilities Commission, they operate the same function. They decide what our capital spend is going to be, um, as well as what rates are going to be, and where new major infrastructure like substations and transmission lines, uh, those things are uh, you know plan uh, approved by the Alberta Utilities Commission. They're actually planned out by the Alberta Electric System Operator, which is another regulatory um, body. But all of these different layers give protection to uh, the consumer. But what it means that is the biggest difference for us is that our rates, our regulations, uh, the Alberta Utilities Commission looks at it from an Alberta framework. So what is best for Alberta? And there's a lot of advantages to that. But there's also, you know, with that comes, you know, the idea that what works in Lethbridge may not work exactly best for Edmonton consumers. But we kind of have to work within regulations that are in that middle ground that represent all of Alberta. So we, we can't be as Edmonton focused when it comes to some of our capital programs um, as maybe Epcor Water can be, just because we have different that that different regulatory constraint. Yeah, I uh, literally before working with you and the water team, I had no idea that you were regulated totally by different levels of government and had different um, opportunities and also different limitations. Uh, I understand a bit about how Epcor Water is funded through the, the city and the rate base, uh, but how is Epcor Power funded for those listening in? So on the electricity side, you know, you've seen your, your bill through your retailer because you picked a retailer. Maybe you have a contracted rate through a contracted retailer like Encore by Epcor um, or one of the others, or maybe you're what's on, you know, maybe you're on what's known as the regulated rate option or the RRO, which is kind of a, a floating rate. Um, and that still goes through, you know, another retailer, perhaps, you know, um, NMAX is your retailer, or you've got Bullfrog Power or something like that. All of those retailers, um, they collect billing information from Epcor for everyone inside of the city, which talks about consumption because there is that cost per kilowatt hour consumption piece that shows up on your bill. Um, and then from there, there's all of those other charges, which 
makes up a huge piece of how Alberta and Edmonton's infrastructure is built and how um, EPCOR gets the funding that it needs to uh, create, maintain, and you know uphold a, a safe and reliable grid. And so when you see all of those riders on the bottom of your bill, all the confusing charges, you know most of them are rider and then a letter, rider K, rider J, there's the transmission fee, there's the distribution fee. You know, we hear a lot about how, you know, it's very confusing to read your bill, you know, in Alberta. And I personally don't disagree. Um, but all of those charges do have a purpose. And what they do is they collect funds that then get redistributed to the transmission facility operators and the distribution facility operators. And so before I was talking about how Alberta, again, is broken up into that jigsaw and each of the territories or the pieces are looked after by one transmission facility operator and one distribution facility operator. Um, the, the funds get collected by the retailers and then redistributed and the Alberta Utilities Commission okays what our, you know, what our spends are. And so uh, part of that is uh, through a five-year cycle through our performance-based rates, we get uh, funding to look after maintaining the existing distribution system. So that's new poles, pole replacements, uh, substation upgrades, new substations, all of these things that a city like Edmonton needs because, you know, we are, you know, we're a million strong right now. The city has a vision to grow towards, you know, 2 million. And so that's another million people living somewhere that are going to need access to electricity. And whether it's, uh, you know, the certain areas of the city, you know, growing and they'll need brand new infrastructure or uh, the ones that are already growing, densifying there and reinforcing and building up that infrastructure, all of that comes at a cost. And so we submit our costs to the AUC. They determine whether they're justifiable, defensible, reasonable, and then they set us a budget for, for five years and we stay within that. And then that money also pays for the major transmission power lines. So when new generation is built um, or when new, they're almost called the backbones of the electrical system, when new high voltage power lines, so not the ones running, you know, like along your street, but, you know, you may have some in your neighborhood or we're all familiar with the, the 500 kilovolt line that runs around the city, around the south side of the Hende up on the uh, east side there those pieces all have to be paid for as well. So all of those weird little charges on the bottom of your bill, the AUC collects those and distributes them. So all of Alberta pays for all of the system. So part of your bill pays for upgrades that are needed in Southern Alberta, that are needed up in Wood Buffalo, um, that are needed in these areas. Sometimes it's determined that something is not for the greater grid benefit and so it's only paid for by a particular set of customers or a customer but again you know there those are special circumstances and sometimes a lot of that's heavy industrial um or sometimes it's if um if the city of edmonton really wanted a new substation and it hadn't been deemed prudent then it would still get built but only edmontonians would pay for it so there's a couple of different factors that go into how it goes, but basically everybody's one big giant pot. You pay on your bill, it goes into that the funds, and then the Alberta Utilities Commission is the one who determines what the appropriate rates, uh, you know, to set for utilities such as EPCOR is to spend to maintain that grid. 
So the average person, uh, I think one of the big upgrades that Epcor uh, Electric has made over the past years is going into smart meters. Was that an Edmonton-specific project? And so Edmonton, Edmontonians only pay for it? Or was that a Alberta-wide thing? That was one, uh, and you're right. Epcor was uh, the first utility inside of Alberta to uh, to take that on, um, and we upgraded all of the meters inside of Edmonton to our automated metering infrastructure, so AMI or smart meters, um, if you will, uh, before we even had the um, green light from the Alberta Utilities Commission. We decided that that was a prudent spend because there were enough advantages to that, that even if it was disallowed as, as a costing, we were willing to, you know, to take that on because we saw benefits. There are reliability benefits, safety benefits, um, and eventually there will be benefits for, you know, uh, the consumer at that um, right at that individual level. And you can see your own your usage and that will help you make great decisions. Um, it did come back in our favor. And so it was seen as something that um, I believe all Albertans, you know, paid for that it came from that portion of the uh, of the funding. And since then, other utilities, um, I think, and Max is in the process of looking at it and they're testing some, but I know that there are some uh, rural areas that are uh, managed by uh, Equus, who's their transmission or distribution facility operator, and they have smart metering now. And so it's um, we're, we're quickly moving in Alberta quickly by utility standards. We're quickly moving to um, to where that is the, uh, you know, is the, is kind of the, the standard bar. Yeah. I think of it a little bit like smart cards for the city of Edmonton for their uh, bus network. It, it took longer I think, than I would have hoped to get there, but uh, it will help people understand how they move through the city. Also understand uh, the city will understand where to put buses, where should they go? Like we're really just throwing darts in the dark right now. Uh, but having that data of how people move around is going to be critical. And I mean, there have been so many advantages for us. The biggest one, um, we know that when the power goes out, it's uh, it's inconvenient and you want us to bring it back on as soon as possible. Um, before smart meters, we relied on people calling us and then we would roll the trouble truck to the neighborhood and literally kind of drive up and down the street and try and determine where that, where that short was. And uh, now with the information that we're receiving from the meters, um, we know exactly, like, I mean, we, we know where the break is or we know where the issue is. And so our ability to get you up and running again is, um, you know, has really benefited from that. And we're really proud of our ability to, uh, to respond to outages and to create that reliable system for uh, Edmontonians. So you've smashed a bunch of myths for us already here. Um, first of all, I thought it was Epcor uh, power forever, so that's been uh, busted. Um, there's a few other myths that I hope you can uh, you can help bust here. The first is uh, this kind of dichotomy between capacity and proximity. Um, there's no such thing as power capacity. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, excellent question. And there is electricity capacity, but when I talk with uh, infill developers, you know, a lot, the big question is, okay, if I buy this lot, help me with business intelligence. If I buy this lot, does it have the capacity to build the project that I want to build? Can I put what I want on this lot? Um, the issue for electricity, electricity isn't like water. You know, water, you've got, you know, a pipe, it's got a certain flow rate. 
And is there enough excess water to, to suit, you know, what you want to build with electricity? Yeah. You need enough electricity and a wire can only carry so many or like can, can only carry so much. However, the thing with electricity is that everything's built in circuits. Everything's built in circular. So if we can't get it to you one way, we will reroute circuits and, you know, other utilities, water and gas, they don't, they don't have that ability. They can't change which way water flows, you know, down a pipe or, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the same, but electricity has that. And so what I say is what you really want to know is what, what do you want to build on this lot and what is your demand going to be? And then let's look at what the proximity to the necessary infrastructure is because less so is there, is there capacity more so is there a reasonable proximity to the type of infrastructure or the type of assets that you need. Um, depending on what you're building, like there's a difference between single phase power and three phase power. And I mean, that's a, a big engineering conversation, so we won't get too much into that, but just know that three phase is more than single phase. So if you're building a bigger project, you probably want it to be close to three phase or at least know that you're going to have to account for a large cost if you're nowhere near three phase, you know, to, you know, to bring it in. Um, but that's something where if you have, you know, an idea of what the proximity is and we're working on that, we like, we understand that frustration. And so I was mentioning, you know, to Mariah that we're really trying to, to bring it home. We're working with the city, we're working with their open data people. We want to be able to present that to you in a way that's easy to see, easy to understand so that you know, how Edmonton's broken up, where aerial service is available or where it is underground and where is single phase versus three phase. And then that'll help you, you know, again, have some more business intelligence as to if you're looking at a particular piece of land, what are the, the limitations or what are going to be the additional costs for servicing that piece? Okay. That makes a lot of sense, actually. What are, what are some of the other common themes or myths or things that you hear from industry that might be, uh, might not be right? You know, one, one myth that I really want to get across um, to infill builders is that there are things that may have to change, but that will be at no cost to an infill developer. It used to be, years ago, it was that if you were building infill and you needed to upgrade the power or you split a lot and you put in, you know, two skinny homes and that required a larger transformer for that block because there was no physical spacing left in the old one. It used to be that you had to pay for the transformer as well. And so that was an additional $35,000, you know, as a, you know, as a rough costing for that, you know, added on to, on top of the, the cost of your, your project. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Epcor on the electric side. Um, we looked at it. We looked at, you know, the wording of the regulations. We looked at, you know, what was happening in other places. And we made the decision that uh, some of those shared assets, ensuring that they're right sized for the neighborhood really does fit in with our um, responsibility to bring reliability to the, to the system. And so now if a, if a shared asset a transformer, 
um, or a switching cube, something like that, like those, you know, big green boxes, sometimes little gray boxes, all of those kinds of things that a house gets, you know, plugged into to get connected to the system. If those need to be upgraded to accommodate your project, Epcor pays for that. You don't pay for that, we pay for that. And so that's one way that we looked to kind of take some of that um, burden off of infill development and kind of take on some of that um, financial expense for ourselves because our job is to make sure that there's access to reliable power. No, that's excellent. I, I, I want to tug in that thread a little bit. What what else does Epcor Electric pay for uh, versus what does a developer builder typically pay for? Sure. Uh, one of the other things, um, again, if it's if it's a shared asset, you know, like the transformers, like the switching cubes, we'll pay for those. Uh, if it's a dedicated dedicated asset, if it's only just for you, then you you know you pay for it. Uh, but the other thing that we'll pay for is if you're building inside of an aerial area and you um, are putting in a new service and you want that to be you know a 200 amp service. Um, in underground areas, we don't have that ability because that requires civil work, trenching and whatnot. In aerial areas, the pools are already there. The infrastructures are already there. We will string um, cable that will handle a 200 amp service and we'll get that rate to your service entry point. And so if you're building, you know, infill, if you're splitting a lot, putting up something and you want 200 amp service and it's in an aerial, you know, area, um, get it to a 200 amp standard because... It, it doesn't make a difference to us. And so we'll, we'll pay for that because we're going to, you know, provide that anyway. Um, the other place that uh, Epcor really looks to support infill development is in some of the higher density, you know, projects. And so when we're talking about, you know, high rises, all of the things that, have, you know, happened, we've seen some amazing projects happen in Oliver and along 124th Street, where we're really, you know, kind of building that uh, big city feel with those, you know, with those high rises, we do have an investment, you know, policy. It works um, on, you know, by Epcor investing roughly just a little less than $300 per, you know, KVA or kilo, kilovolt ampere, which is, you know, again, engineering talk. Um, when you have smaller projects like homes, your average home, you're looking at, you know, like three KVA. And so the Epcor, you know, investment would be, you know, 800 dollars you know like, i mean not not that much but when you're talking about a high rise and so you know you've got you know 15 floors and you're putting in ev chargers and you've got elevators and you know air conditioning and all of this you know the electrical system can you know be in the hundreds of thousands for some of these projects epcor recognizes that um you know that that can be you know a huge factor and we want to encourage city building and we also want to, you know, ensure that uh, we have an ability to properly um, hook those types of projects up. And as well, like, I mean, this is putting capital in, putting wires, you know, in the ground. This is how Epcor makes its money. And so we want to invest in that. And so our investment formula can take, you know, take on the, the costing of the electrical infrastructure required for those larger projects. And so... Whether it's, you know, a really big one or maybe you're looking at something medium sized, it's always worth a conversation with Epcor to kind of understand this is what I'm planning. This is what my demand will be. What would be, you know, what would be the investment from Epcor, you know, for this type of thing? Or what are ways that we could potentially look at, um, 
mitigating some of those uh, some of those costs. Because again, we're really invested. We want to be able to provide business intelligence to help infill developers um, help build Edmonton into the best city, the city that we all want and the city that we all deserve. And we want to, to give you information to do that. So pulling on that, um, let's say I'm an infill builder and whether I'm doing a smaller project or a medium scale project, I'm assessing different lots, what their current conditions are uh, from a electric or power perspective. What are some things as you look at lots that would be flags to say, hey, I should read out, reach out to electricity right now and see what they have to say. So the, I mean, the first thing is, you know, take a look at what your demand is going to be and then what the, the proximity to infrastructure in the area is going to be. So you can kind of get those ideas as to um, what, what your proximity, you know, to a line is going to be so that you understand those costs, but then also take a look at your design and, you know, what is there now? Because again, because we're funded by rates that are on everyone's bill, we have to be very prudent with how we spend, you know, those dollars. And so if you go ahead and you buy a lot and you're, you know, you're, you're planning out your design and you know where the, the garage is going to be, um, the number of times that, you know, I've heard, well, someone told me that Epcor will move that pole for free. And so we just built, you know, we just designed it or even worse is when it just gets built and then we get the phone call and it's like, okay, we need you to come move this pole. It's your, it's your project. You, you put your project in conflict with our poll. Our poll was there first. And so you have to pay to move it because that's not something that benefits the entire system. That's something that only benefits your project. And so you need, you know, you need to know that. So you need to know, are there poles in the way? Are there anchors, you know, in the way? All of these types of things. And if you can adjust your design, that's great. If you can't, two things, you know, that I would point out. One is, uh, we can take a look and find out exactly what it'll cost for you to move a pole, move an anchor, move a transformer, any of these types of things. Um, but it takes a lot of engineering. We're not talking about landscaping. We're not just moving rocks. We're not just moving trees like the electrical wires, understanding how it's going to impact, you know, the reliability for the rest of the neighborhood. If it has anchors on it, those anchors provide counter tension to how the line itself is pulling. And so we can't just take the anchors away because then the line would fall over and that's bad. So we want to make sure that we have to engineer it out and that can take up to six weeks. Like it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy little thing that we can run through. So just give yourself that kind of time or going in. If you just need a high level understanding, okay, I'm looking at this lot and I think that pole needs to be moved. If there's a bunch of engineering, I can account for, you know, a plus minus, but what is it going to cost? We don't do ballpark estimates. We won't do quick estimates, but what we will do, you can give us a call, you know, through our intake um, number or, you know, through CES, uh, our customer engineering services, uh, CES at fcore.com um, and ask, what does it typically, or what has it historically cost to? And then just describe for us a little bit what you're trying to do. And we'll take a look at, where else in the city has that happened? Because nothing is really ever that unique in, in what people are asking for, particularly with infill, because you're dealing with neighborhoods that have, you know, existed. So the infrastructure has been there. And so maybe it needs to, you know, move a little bit this way, that way, or there will be something that'll be very similar. And so we can tell you what a historical costing for that type of activity was being with the caveat that 
there might be, you know, something that we're unfamiliar with in the engineering and that can, you know, sway it. But at the very least, you'll have a good, solid, rough number to work with that, again, provides that baseline um, information. Yeah, you're not doing a deep dive at that level. Uh, if I was a builder looking to get that, like, um, estimate or historical context of what the cost could be, what kind of timeline am I expecting when I call in? Will it take you guys five seconds, three hours, 40 days? <laughs> Generally, that level of information, um, you know, isn't isn't that detailed. So we just have a little bit of research. And so... Generally, you know, five business days, we'll have an answer back to you. There are some times where, you know, business volume picks up like right now as we're in, you know, coming up on the holiday season, we have a bunch of jobs where people are trying to get things done before the weather goes really bad. Weather can impact some of our jobs as well. We've got crews going out, you know, on holidays soon. And so we're running at a little bit of a skeleton. So it can take a little bit longer. We don't have as many designers or they're working hard on other things. And uh, so it might take upwards of, you know, 10 days, 10 business days. So two, you know, two business weeks. But typically through the year, you're looking at about a one business week, five business days, you know, kind of time frame. Yeah, that's really good context for people to know. So they call you at the right times. <laughs> Is there anything else that would trigger uh, a call to you or your team or another group within uh, Epcor Electric? as people are assessing sites or build or designing out projects? Something that I'd love to, you know, to emphasize to your membership is we're seeing more and more of this is if you're in an area, particularly with aerial infrastructure, as more and more, you know, is built and as people are looking at, you know, um, garden suites or garage suites or all of this type of things, we're taking up more and more of what used to be on the lot. Um, electrical lines, we cannot emphasize enough that there is a huge safety factor there. And so if your project is going to be within seven meters of a line and you've seen, you know, you've seen these campaigns, seven meters, you know, keep it safe, give us a call, call and we'll connect you with our safety standards so that you can talk through your design and we can keep you well aware of what those safety standards are because they, I mean, they, ha they have real implications. We're talking about, you know, the safety, not only of the people that are going to live in that, you know, that house or work in that business, depending, but also as you're building it, you've got framers, you've got roofers um, that are, that are working alongside. We, we need to keep them safe because there's a limit of approach that we really have to uh, be aware of as well. After you build it, you know, you're building your house, you're going to string Christmas lights, or you're going to clean the eaves or things like that. If, if you don't adhere to those safety standards, and if somehow it slips through, um, that's a real danger. And if you're unsure, am I too close? Ask, 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 don't assume, give us a call. We'll connect you with safety codes. We'll make sure that you get the information that you need so that you can adjust early on rather than, you know, when it's, you know, a lot costlier. So you beat me to the punch. I wanted to ask you about uh, underground service versus aerial uh, service or overhead service and some of the opportunities and challenges with both of them because they exist mostly in different places in the city. Uh, there's real benefits to aerials, <laughs> but there's also, as you talked about, uh, safety concerns. Um, so yeah, can you can you walk me through and other people through 
benefits and challenges of aerial and underground? Sure. Uh, let me say there are, you know, safety concerns underground as well. You've seen the, you know, call before you dig and that goes with, you know, electricity, water, gas. You you cannot, you know, just guess where stuff is underneath. So whether you're putting in fence posts or building a brand new home, if you're in an underground area, um, call, well, call before you dig regardless if you're building a new thing because there's going to be water lines and gas lines and everything, you know, under there. Um but there are, you know, there are pluses, pros and cons, you know, to both. Um, a lot of people like underground facilities because you don't have that visual that you're, you know, that you're looking at. So aesthetically, it's nicer. We get a lot of push for undergrounding things, but it's also costlier depending on, you know, what you're talking about. When you're talking about those giant power lines, those transmission power lines, it can it can be upwards of 20 times more costly to bury those lines than um, to have them aerially, which is why we have a bunch up in the air on those um, those towers and going around. And that's why it's the standard, you know, globally. So yeah, in mature neighborhoods, you see, you know, there's only so many lines that can go up there, but you see them crisscrossing everywhere and it gets, you know, there's a lot of people that they don't like that look. And so by burying it, you have that aesthetic where you're not looking at that. And also by burying lines, when the weather, you know, we live in a northern Canadian city, um, the roads get slick, someone's driving along, if the if the line is buried, you can't slide into, you know, into the pole or into the transformer, because it's underground. And so there's, you know, a bit of that safety piece. But as well, the lines underground do break. And they're a lot easier to fix when they're aerial, it's easier to find, it's easier to repair. Um, our restoration times for aerial tends to be a lot better. So there's there's different schools of thought about how to build the system. Um, Edmonton is a great blend of both types of, uh, of aerial and underground. Uh, and we just try to balance it out and, you know, keep all of the, as many of the pros as we can, and then mitigate the cons. So as missing middle projects get built, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Uh, power poles may have to be moved around uh, for, a developer builder looking at their project timelines, if they have to move around a power pole, how long should they kind of put that into, into their project plan? Like I give you a call. I say, Hey, Andrew, help me move this power pole. <laughs> how, how long do you need to assess it? And then how long until we can actually move it? So it would require a couple of different things. One, we need someone to pay for it. So if the developer is absolutely, yep. I'm, I'm going to pay for this. I just need to know, you know, what it's going to be. It'll typically take us three or four weeks to do uh, an engineering study, which will result in that estimate. And so then we'll be able to give you a full idea because we need to look at um, where, where can we move that, you know, that pole to and what else is, you know, connected to it because sometimes you'll have laterals and they'll be feeding streetlights. And if we're going to do that, we have to understand where things need to be recabled. And so it takes a little while to do that figuring. And then there's your, there's your figure. And if you're okay with that figure, you pay us for it. And then we move on and we do the rest of the engineering that's required. Generally, that's about another, you know, four weeks. Um, and then we do the actual work. If we're just talking about a, a pull move or an anchor relocation, those tend to be fairly simple. Um, and so 
the engineering time may have been, you know, just a little bit less. And so instead of four weeks, it might've been, you know, three, and then it's just a matter of getting it on the schedule, the next open day. So for a pole move or an anchor relocation, it can be, you know, probably generally less than, you know, eight weeks. Um, but if it's also a busy time of year and you're competing with everything else that's going on, all of, you know, the engineering that's required for land servicing for new builds, or if it's, you know, peak construction season, or if it's during the holidays, that can always impact timelines as well. So we try to be very open and honest right from the get-go. As soon as your application comes in, we'll let you know what the timeline is going to be for for engineering, what the timeline is going to be. After that, your project manager will keep you up to date. But, you know, generally you're looking probably for something simple like that at about eight weeks if you're getting a new service or an upgraded service and we need to be involved then that kind of thing is where we get more towards the the 12 weeks total yeah it's a it's a it's a moving game it's like a game of chess when you're building a project you're trying to coordinate with permits with uh with power water drainage echo all these different things uh and so i like Timelines change different times of the year, but it's great to have that like project plan. Okay, this is going to take me eight weeks. This is going to take me 12 weeks at uh, upfront. You know, you can tell your investors or your homeowners ish how long, <laughs> how long until they can move in or how long they can until we can change over the keys. Um, but Epcor Power has worked on a bunch of interesting projects and tools uh, to help provide transparency update different things. Uh, I would love if you talked a little bit about some of the projects that Epcor Power has been kind of focused on over the past few years in, in regards to development. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, as far as Epcor business units, you know, we're concerned with something that we were a leader on is we have um, our portal for developers. And so when you put in your application, um, it goes into, you know, into a portal and you get assigned a PM. And that's the big communication piece where we really try to maintain that transparency. And so through that portal, you can go in, you can see where your project is at as well. If you forget who your project manager is, then that will remind you. It generates um, key pieces of communication as milestones, you know, are achieved. And so it reminds people that, you know, like, hey, here's your estimate, just so you know, review it, okay it, pay it, and then we'll move, you know, to the next, you know, piece. And then as we're going along, if you're putting, as an example, if you're putting in a new service, you know, like um, you're going to need to assign a retailer to that in order to get a meter on the house, you know, at the end, which is, you know, something that some, uh, some folks have, you know, uh, forgotten, you know, along the way. Oh yeah, I've got a, the way Alberta works, I have to find a retailer so that that meter can be, assigned and installed and these you know these types of things and so the portal is uh is a great tool and uh, epcor water has taken a lot of uh um, advice from us on how to build their own so they're in the process of, of building a portal as well for the same you know type of thing uh to provide that business communication and that transparency because uh we're you know we're we're big on that we're we're invested in that and we want you to to understand who to go to when you have questions about your project, as well as how to see information, how to do some of that, you know, that self-service or that investigation on your own. Uh, the big thing that I would mention to people there, if you're using a contractor and they submit your application, 
make sure that they list you as well as a contact on that. Otherwise, all the communication just goes to them because they've only given us their phone number and their email. And if they're just getting it, then you're left in the dark. But we don't know you're out there looking for this information either. So help us out. Make sure you talk to your contractor. Make sure they include you as a contact when they're um, when they're putting in that application and when it goes into the portal. That's a great pro tip. I know um, Ideas Infrastructure Committee really appreciates the EPCOR portal uh, for electricity and asked Water, hey, can, can we do something similar? <laughs> we, we'd like to send you things electronically. And it was um, great, EPCOR Water's response. We've been working on it with them for the past uh, about year and a half um, and in the testing phase right now. So I can't give enough of praise to that team that's been working on it uh, and uh, your team for giving them all the help and advice to get us to where we are. Fun things coming this spring. <laughs> Fun things, yeah. You know, beyond that, you talked, you, you wanted to talk about other tools. I mentioned earlier, you know, we are looking at uh, developing proximity maps and we hope to get those um, incorporated into the business intelligence that the city of Edmonton provides so that there's a one-stop shop. Um, there's some some technical things that I don't fully understand. I'm not smart enough. So uh, if something happens where we have to pop it out and host it for a little while until the city, you know, can start incorporating it into the mapping tools, we'll do that and we'll let you know. Um, we do have, you know, historical, you know, costing data so we can help you make some uh, better decisions, you know, to start off with about what um, what different changes to a site might uh, might cost. Um, you know, and the other thing, uh, the other tool that we have is our people. We have a lot of very learned people. So if you have a question, like, I mean, we're, we're there for you. We would love to engage early, engage often and answer as much as we can for you about, about your project and any of the questions that you have. And so those would be kind of the big tools that I would really emphasize. That's all very exciting stuff. Um, I want to ask about uh, the impact, if there was any, uh, on our power grid or anything you're working on as a result of uh, the pandemic over the last couple of years. Have you seen any changes or uh, is there more draws from the power grid because everyone's sitting at home in hot tubs or what is um, what kind of uh, impacts did that have, if anything? What we saw was, I mean, first of all, like, I can't say enough good things about the crews, the guys that put on orange and go out and do the actual work. We were an essential service. Um, we, we were declared an essential service, but I'm going to tell you it's, they were declared. They are the essential service. Those, uh, those folks, those men and women who are going out in the bucket trucks, keeping, uh, keeping the lights on, keeping the electricity going. They are fantastic. And we are super proud of our, statistics when it comes to reliability for electricity. If you compare us to other jurisdictions in Alberta, as well as uh, elsewhere through the country, we stack up amongst the best. And so we're really proud of that. And we maintained that through the, uh, through the pandemic. We did a lot to protect um, our crews from uh, unnecessary exposure. We, you know, put them, you know, we didn't have people transferring back and forth between different crews and we protected them. So we held our reliability statistics through all of that. Um, but the other thing that we saw was we saw a real change in how people engage 
with their electricity. Pre-pandemic, people went somewhere else to work. Typically, you went downtown or you went to you know, the business park, wherever your office was, you went there and you used the electricity there. And so neighborhood demands were, you know, they would have those, those daily dips. But then when people started working from home, and even now, you know, as we move into an endemic state, um, people are still working from home. It might be a hybrid state. And so maybe you're not Monday through Friday, but a couple of days out of the week, you're still there. And so we have to make sure that we're, again, constantly putting our dollars in the right place to make sure that we're maintaining the system. And not that that's more important now, but that it has bigger impacts. Um, it's also changed our business processes a lot. It used to be not a big deal and very common you know, to have uh, a power outage. So you're, you're doing some work in a neighborhood and you need to, to, to turn off a street for you know, a day so that you can hook up a new transformer or hook up a new house or, you know, something like that. Okay, well, choose, you know, Monday through Friday, somewhere starting at nine, finishing at three, and it's very little disruption, you know, to people's lives. That's not how it is anymore. And so we're looking at ways of changing um, our processes. And we, we started looking for efficiencies so that we can continue to minimize um how often and how long an outage is going to be if we're doing those types of things. We've changed some of our notification procedures so that, you know, you're aware so that on the day that I tell you that you're going to be without power, okay, that's the day that you go to the office to work, or that's the day you, I don't know, work from Starbucks or, you know, whatever you've got going on um, so that you can, you know, make some of those changes. So that was kind of the biggest impact to us is that we had to, um, take a look and really be more aware of the, the changing needs of Edmontonians and what they expect from their utility company. That's a great answer. And yeah, if I can share a little anecdote, my wife and I moved into uh, our place uh, right at the start of the pandemic, I suppose, um, right in the middle, I guess. But anyways, there was a moment where we had a power outage. And I think every man in the neighborhood, myself included, went out onto our back porch, hands out, pointing at poles. Like we had no idea what was going on, but it was a great way for us to meet our neighbors because everybody, everybody was at home. There was an outage. I got to meet a bunch of neighbors and we all discussed, you know, what we thought the problem was. But the response time and how fast those, um, that outage got repaired was incredible. So yeah, hat tip to all of those crews that had to work extra hard uh, <laughs> with some challenging circumstances. Um, the last thing I want to ask uh, is uh, the future of our electric grid. Um, you mentioned smart meters. There's a huge discussion kind of internationally about smart cities. Um, what kinds of projects or uh, transmission type things are coming down the pipeline that you're aware of or that you're excited about? Uh, it, you know, it is exciting times because, as I mentioned, we do have those uh, smart meters and we're constantly looking Right now, we have a lot of data that's coming to us. And like I say, they helped our reliability. They helped us track down those outages um, earlier. But we know that there's more that, you know, that we can do. And we know that there's more that people want to do with that information. And so we continue to, you know, to take a look at how we can involve, uh, how we can evolve our customer experience so that we can provide more data so that you can see what your usage, you know, is. I would love it if there was an ability to kind of take a look, not just and not just get a monthly, you know, report by way of a bill of how you're doing. Oh, hey, look, you know, we're better this month than we were last month. 
but just, you know, hour by hour. And even with some of, you know, those smart devices, just I've seen some things in other jurisdictions where you can get, a, you know, a personal little dashboard and it shows you um, a whole lot more in, you know, in the way of uh, information. And so you can make different decisions, you know, for your household, for your family and these types of things, which feed into other, you know, decisions, you know, that you may make. Um, when we talk about, you know, the future of the grid, we know that more and more people are going to become micro generators, you know, the, the proficiency and the penetration of solar panels as one example of micro generation has gone, you know, up and up and up. Um, you go back just five years ago, you know, to 2017, and Edmonton as a whole had fewer than 200, fewer than 150 inside of the city that had microgeneration that had solar panels uh, attached to them. But then it became a bigger priority for different levels of government. And so I think it was around about 2019, where the city of Edmonton started offering up an incentive and you saw a spike, you know, going from just over 200 to doubling in 2019 to where it was uh, over 400, just shy of 500 in that year. And now last or year to date this year, you know, we've had over 600 applications uh, for people who are adding that to to their household. Um, and that's, you know, brought us to about, you know, like two and a half thousand, which is still a very small number. But when you see how it's, you know, doubled 150 to just over 200, to all of a sudden 500, 500, 600, and it continues, you know, to kind of go up. And so we know that um, that's an evolution of, you know, of the grid, which was another reason why smart meters were a big um, piece for us, because they're bi-directional meters. Not only do they measure how much electricity is coming in, but if there is excess electricity that you're producing that day, it goes back out to the benefit of the grid. And so you need a meter that can measure it going, you know, both ways. And it used to be, you know, before we put in AMI, you would have to buy a special meter from us in order to accommodate that. And now we've just deployed these AMI meters everywhere. And it's just, you know, something so that's no longer a barrier so that we're facilitating that that type of growth. The other thing that, you know, we look at with uh, regards to the electrical grid and where it's uh, going is um, again how people are changing how they're engaging with you know electricity. Uh, electric vehicles are not a fad anymore. They're not a a pipe dream. They're becoming more and more common, and that's you know a big draw when it comes to the electrical profile of a house. And so we need to know what is you know the penetration going to be. How many are going to be in this neighborhood, and can this neighborhood? handle it? Do we need to upgrade the transformers? How quickly do we need to upgrade the transformers? Because we have to balance responsiveness with cost because we could go out today and just replace all the transformers in the city um, and it would be millions and that would show up on your bill, but it wouldn't be needed in some areas for quite some time. And so we're really kind of going through that and studying the data and seeing you know the information come back and trying to keep ahead of that curve, but not too much ahead of that curve. The other thing, again, just, and this goes back to uh, how people change their electricity use in pandemic times. Edmontonians, um, we used to be, you know, a city where we had the attitude that, you know, like ah, three days a year is, is, that's when you need air conditioning. So I'm not going to get air conditioning. Well, now, you know, like, I mean, you think back to the last couple of summers and you've got weeks on end and air conditioning is more and more common. Um, 
I think my house might be the last one in Edmonton. At least that's how I sell it to my wife that we're the last. We need to to convert. We need to get some cool air because I'm delicate and I deserve it. Um, but these types of things are big electrical draws. And so we need to understand how people are changing, um, how they interact with electricity. But also we have to be mindful of how technology is changing as well, because you take a look. Great example is refrigerators used to be these huge electric beasts and then they got more efficient. And so, I mean, they're still a huge draw, but not the way that old electricity uh, refrigerators used to be, you know, back in the you know 60s or 70s or even into the 80s. And so technology changes. And so we have a lot of engineers doing a lot of engineering things to make sure that we're taking a look at all of these different aspects and building out our grid in a way that we can continue to be responsive so that you can have the level and the reliability of electricity that you need without having a bill that is too much of a shock to your system. So the same way that you're trying to sell air conditioning uh, to your wife, I am trying to sell a smart thermostat to Ali, uh, my husband. <laughs> I'm like, it will be great when we go on vacation. We could turn it all the way low. Uh, and then as we get like an hour or two before we get back, we can warm up the place. <laughs> like, yeah. And like, I've heard fantastic things about how it can you can set it to different times of the day. And so when you wake up, it's warmer. When you go to bed, it's cooler. Oh, the great things you can do with electricity. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're hearing more and more from builders and developers about the idea of electrification for heating. Like, I don't know about you right now, but my smart thermostat is hooked to an old, uh, well, not an old, but to uh, a gas you know, furnace. My, my house is forced air heat through an old furnace, which was the Alberta standard, you know, for, for however long, but now we have more people who are looking at, you know, geothermal heat pumps and electrification of housing. And so the same team that a few years ago started taking a really deep dive into looking at how electrification of vehicles impacts electricity delivery at the neighborhood level. Now we're incorporating to looking at how the idea of changing standards for for homes towards something like electrification for heating will impact you know the grid as well so there's there's so much out there and we just kind of have to keep our eyes open our ears to the ground be aware of all of this um, and how people are changing how the customer experience is changing and how we have to respond as a as a modern utility yeah, well, I think it goes back to the what we talked about previously in the conversation that 100 amp versus 200 amp versus 300 amp and how we're slowly moving towards a 200 uh, as a city, as a standard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if you're rebuilding, <laughs> give Andrew a call. Yeah. And I mean, again, uh, something that, you know, Epcor was very proud to work with, uh, you know, with IDEA and other organizations that represent builders and developers over the last year, because the Alberta Utilities Commission was looking at um, the maximum investment levels, you know, which is what we pay on a per lot basis. And it was more reflective of 100 amps in a greenfield area. So if the standard and if the city is going to, if Edmonton as a city is going to focus more on, you know, or have uh, an increased focus on infill building uh, densification, and if the consumer is needing 200 amps, then the regulations need to, you know, to change. And so it was a great 
collaboration, a great dialogue between IDEA and EPCOR to ensure that your voice was included in that conversation that the Alberta Utilities Commission was having. Yeah, I I very much appreciated that conversation. And I know the Utilities Commission uh, traditionally uh, they've leaned on internal experts uh, or groups within EPCOR uh, and other utility providers, but it was great to be able to talk to them um, kind of like one-on-one in a room full of other <laughs> other industry people too uh, about kind of like what we're seeing, what we're expecting, uh, giving them a bit of insight that way. But not that we need to dive deep into, the, <laughs> into that here. Uh, well, I've taken up a ton of your time this afternoon and You've got the whole city to electrify. Uh, So before I let you go, can uh, you take some time to give our listeners a call to action? Uh, We do this with every one of our guests. Sometimes it's they go and vote. Sometimes it's go and read something. Uh, But what is something from your standpoint that our listeners should think about today? The one thing that I would really emphasize for your listeners to do, and I mentioned this earlier Um, is make sure that you're aware of the standards. Uh, Know that there's a difference between a building permit, a development permit, and an electrical permit. And know how the electrical safety standards play into that so that that you're, as you're looking to design, you're building someone's dream home, you're designing someone's, you know, their little castle. Um, We want to keep it out of, you know, conflicts. We don't want to be the big bad utility that has to come in and say, you can't do that because you're too close to this line or have you, you know, considered this, like the, the standards are there. If you're not sure where to find them, ask us, we'll connect you to them or we'll connect you to our safety standards. Again, we have a lot of expertise um, that can help you ensure that there's no hidden surprises. Um, And that just kind of dovetails into, into another thing. If you have other questions outside of safety, engage us, talk to us early, talk to us often, let us know where to meet you. Where do you need our information? Where in the process, you know, do you want us to be? Um, Because we are different than EPCOR water. They're out there. They're on different uh, circulars or different application reviews. EPCOR electric is different because we're not water. Um, And so tell us how to engage you. Tell us what you need to know. Engage us early, engage us often particularly if you have a question about safety standards. So Andrew, what is what you're saying when I publish this podcast episode, I could also publish a general email for your team that uh, people can connect with you later on. Absolutely. Yes. Um, questions like that can be sent to our uh, intake specialist, which uh, um, I forget what the phone number is off the top, but I know I've sent it to you before. Um, I can send it to you again, but then also CES at epcor.com, which is uh, our intake email inbox and uh, give us a couple of days. We'll get back to you. We'll find you and we'll connect you. You know what? We'll connect you. If you want to learn more about net zero homes, how will that, you know, how can you incorporate that? You want to talk to someone, what are Epcor's processes or how to navigate the AUC system for microgeneration? I got people that'll talk to you. Uh, you want to know, you got a question about, you know, about water. I can't answer it. One, because I don't know the answer. And two, because of business unit rules. But you betcha, I will connect you. I'll tell you, I'll either tell you who you need to find or I'll find them for you and get them connected to you. So. 
Andrew's a very well-connected individual, <laughs> so reach out to his team. Uh, thank you so much for your time today and for delving into some of the myths, some of the opportunities, uh, some of the upcoming exciting projects that uh, people can look forward to, and also just general conversation about electricity. I know Ryan and I go back and forth about it all the time, and we are not the experts. We should not be talking about it, as we are very happy to have you today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation. I like to bring information because I don't like it when people are kept in the dark, pun intended. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well done. And I love a good pun. <laughs> that was a fantastic episode. I uh, love learning about electricity, but you know what I love more? is learning that it's, you know, we've been saying it one way, but that's not actually how it's said. Do you know how many times in this episode we slipped up and said Epcor Power? See, the thing is, I don't think we slipped up and said Epcor Power. I think I slipped up and said Epcor Power. I think you pivoted real fast <laughs> and left me in the dust. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to give you the benefit and, you know, make this more of a team effort. But yeah, you said <laughs> Epcor Power three times. But I feel like you probably say that uh, more than three times a day for the last, like, however many years you've been at Idea. I didn't know until we met Andrew, to be perfectly honest, that it wasn't called Epcor Power. I just didn't want to be called out in the outro. So I switched my language right away. <laughs> Yeah, you're much more adaptable to change than I am. I was just like, this is how I've been saying it. I'm going to have to relearn this. I can't do this on the fly right now. <laughs> I mean, three times is not bad. And the, the new one, like Distribution and Transmissions Incorporated, is a mouthful. Yeah, it's not as cool. F-Core Power just rolls off the tongue. No, <laughs> no. But I'm glad that we only did it three times. We. Um he mentioned uh, Lucy's Homestyle Pies and Hannah as being the best pie place in the world. I'm assuming you haven't been down there. I have not, which is unfortunate because pies are great. Pies are great. Uh, I've never been to Hannah. What about you? No, I've never been there either, but uh, I'm a big, big lover of pies. Let's hear where your favorite pies in the city come from. My grandma actually makes my favorite pies. They're phenomenal and she makes so many different types. Um, do you have a favorite place locally? Because... I can't get my grandma's pies anymore, so I love recommendations. What was before I answer? Because mine's a pretty basic answer. But what was your uh, your the favorite flavor? Rhubarb pie. That's so good. Right? Rhubarb is so gross on its own, and then in a pie format, it's incredible. Yeah, my oma made incredible rhubarb pies too. Um, yeah, I'm a fife and deckle guy. I'm a fife and deckle guy. I like their sandwiches. Their pies are really good. The pecan pie. Um, we get it for birthday parties at the Idak household quite frequently. Um, my in-laws are big fans of like the Safeway pies and the lemon meringue from pies from Safeway. Uh, cause they have massive meringues on them. So those are, that, that's also good too. Those would be my two favorites. I think is just a regular Safeway pie. And then for something special, Fife and Deckel for sure. Both of those are good. Pecan pie and lemon meringue pie is delicious. I love tangy things any like you put lemon on anything and i am there i'm down for it <laughs> agreed yeah agreed i also found it really interesting that andrew schooled us on how long epcor power edmonton power sorry uh has been around for so it's been around for he said i think a hundred years and when i looked it up they started in 1891 edmonton electric and lighting power company 
that's crazy. That's a history. Was Edmonton even around in 1891? I don't think Edmonton, I don't think Alberta was a province or Edmonton was a city. We're going to have to fact check that. But that is crazy that it's been around for that long. Look where they are now. Look, now they power all of us. <laughs> yeah. Now I can't do anything without them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, some myths about electricity, which I thought was really interesting. The uh, We talked a lot about like the differences between water and power, but, you know, capacity versus proximity was one that I learned as well from Andrew. Like I, I just assumed that, you know, there was a capacity for power and somebody had to shift it upwards and downwards depending on load, but it's actually how close you are to the power source. Um, I'm sure there's some sciencey reason for that, but I found that to be kind of interesting. The regulatory framework, how they get all their, um, you know, regulatory policies and everything from a provincial body or the, the AUC, that was kind of fascinating. Where they get their funding from, like it's a completely different um, setup than Epcor Water, and I just assumed they were the same because they had Epcor in the name. I know it's it's crazy. It's cool to know that there's enough juice in the system. We just have to figure out a smarter way to like move it around and get it to people. Um, yeah, it's more technology, more electricity needed <laughs> to make things yeah. happen. More transformers. <laughs> Did you grow up in a neighborhood with a transformer in it? Yeah, literally my best friends across the street, Colin and Russell. Uh, I spent every night pretty much with Russell playing Lego. And then Colin and my brother taught me how to skateboard. There was a transformer in front of their house. Uh, and it, you definitely should be careful around transformers. Not like I was as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had one in our front yard. We didn't even think anything of it. Like we didn't play with it or anything, but it was a uh, part of our front yard plays for sure until our neighbor landscaped around it. But yeah, they, they seem to be everywhere. Um, the last thing which I want to hammer home here, uh, Andrew mentioned, we need to do our homework during feasibility because Epcor electric Epcor electric distribution. Oh, now I just want to say Epcor power. They don't get circulated on your applications. So getting some, uh, you know, headaches and comments once you go to develop that you wouldn't have gotten during your pre-app meeting or circulations, that, that could be fairly frustrating. And this actually happened to me once. Uh, I was a brand new planner in the city of Brandon in Manitoba, and I was bringing forward an application uh, there they have a planning committee that makes decisions on uh, like development applications. So I was presenting on behalf of the city, our position on this, uh, on this uh, application. And one of the planning committee members was like, I live really close to there. There's a power pole directly in the back lane where this parking pad is supposed to be. So uh, it's something that I missed at the time because similar to, uh, to here, um, power and electric companies weren't circulated on applications. I didn't go do a site visit because I was new and lazy. And yeah, we had to take the application all the way back. The applicant didn't find it out. I didn't do my homework. And then this luck, luckily this planning commission member um, found that there was a power pole in our parking area. And we had to go right back to the drawing board and recirculate and redesign the site and go all the way back through. So that haunts me. Um, I remember the applicant's name and face as, uh, as he was being told the news of all of this. And I will never make that mistake again. And neither should any of you that are listening. Please do your homework. Go and see if there's power poles, uh, overhead power lines, or any kind of power infrastructure on your property before you go to develop it. Because you might not know. Yeah, Andrew's a great resource for that. 
so many times projects aren't impacted by power. It's part of the reason they're not circulated at this point. Uh, but IDEA over the next year is going to work with EPCOR Power and the City of Edmonton to figure out what applications actually should be circulated uh, to EPCOR Power so that they can do it in a timely and efficient manner and you get the information that you need. So if you've ever had a problem like Ryan had, uh, please reach out to IDEA. <laughs> they're going to be working on it. Yeah, my my problem was my fault. That wasn't because I didn't uh, communicate anything. But yes, good advice. Yeah. Well, last little plug for the infrastructure committee. Yeah. Um, before we head out for the day, um, I just wanted to say thanks so much to Chris. Uh, he's a listener of ours, and he recently joined as a member too, uh, and came out to our event that happened just this week that we're doing the recording. So thanks so much for listening, Chris. Thanks, Chris. And you go have a good day. You too. Bye. Thank you.